I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Rosencrantz and Gilderstein. What was that, honey? Why did he just call us Rosencrap and Goldilocks? No, no, it's the Shakespeare coffee shop, honey. It's just a little joke. Oh, okay. Uh, hey, uh, I'll take a medium double shot mocha with some of those uh, sprinkly deals on top. Give the dry fool drink. Then is the fool not dry? Uh, come again? Honey, you have to order in Shakespeare. Mm. That's part of the deal. Fun, right? Uh, yeah, um, okay. Hark, um... <laughs> I requireth a doubleth le shot de ye oldie mocha. <laughs> Lusty? Go rate thy minions, proud, insulting boy. What? What's this guy's problem? Okay, hey, honey, why don't you try English, pal? Calm down. You can't just put if on the end of everything, okay? You have to actually use real Shakespeare quotes or you might be challenged to a duel. You brought me to a coffee shop where I might be challenged to a duel? Uh, the coffee's really good. How's it with you, madam? What is your pleasure? Okay. Watch me, honey. To all and him we thirst, and all to all a double-shot latte. Is true in due course. Come thronging soft and delicate desires. What? Soft and delicate what? That's my wife, man. What? Oh. <laughs> Does the cuckold smite me? Look, I, I don't understand anything you just said, but if you don't stop, this umbrella's going where the sun don't shine, all right? And I don't mean Portland. I mean, it'll be in Portland, technically, but it'll also be, you know, right up here. Okay, honey, don't provoke him. Didn't you notice the dead body on the floor behind the counter? Uh, I thought he was on break or something. Draw your sword, street urchin. I will grind your bones to dust, and with your blood I'll make a paste. Another paste, a coffin I will rear, and make two pasties of your shameful heads. Uh, no, no, nobody turns me into a pasty. Oh, oh, look out, look out, he's got a milk thermometer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Presented to my knife his throat. Surrender, knave. Just say one thing, anything in Shakespeare. My grip shall be relinquished when this fool pays the bard the respect he deserves. With a proper quote. <laughs> What's a bard? Uh, Shakespeare! Okay, um, all right, I know one phrase. I think it's uh, from Omelette. Hamlet. Hamlet, yeah, Hamlet. Okay. Uh, alas, poor yogurt. Uh, really? Um, oh, oh, Borneo, oh, Borneo. Uh, where's you be at? Um, for if you be, then uh, do you not to be uh, for the light from yawning windows um, 
breaks for parting his sweat, such sweat, sorry. Lo, here cometh I feel ya with news. Tis, tis. From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, home to the world's smallest park and the world's largest inferiority complex, it's Livewire. And now that woman who gives you the stink eye when you roll down the block in your Hummer, it's Courtney Hameister. Thanks so much, everybody. Tonight is a great show. We have an award-winning short filmmaker. He is also a video director, and just last year he completed his first feature, Some Days Are Better Than Others. Matt McCormick is with us tonight. And we have another award winner, the man who's been artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival for the last four years, Bill Rausch, is with us tonight. We're really excited about that. And our musical guest tonight is the harmony-rich indie folk band, Priory. So that's going to be really fun. Also, a big announcement. Tonight we are welcoming WNJR Radio from Washington and Jefferson College in Washington, Pennsylvania. We love that we are required listening for a class in your Department of Theater and Communication. So since we have your ear, uh, whether you like it or not, we would just like to say uh, drugs are bad. Be yourself and love with abandon, but never to the point of tattooing anyone's name on a body part. Uh, breakups are painful, but not as painful as making your Tommy Rules tattoo read. Tommy Rules, and I'm referring to the 1969 rock opera, not the asshat who just dumped me in the middle of the quad. So welcome, WNJR. We love you. And it's very important that you meet the wonderful members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, will sit in our audience, and in the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it takes T.S. Eliot to turn over in his grave when he hears memory from cats, Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses what he's learned over the course of the show. So welcome, Scott, and get to writing. And we can't do it without our wonderful house band. Ralph Huntley is at his hometown in Iowa with his family, and our thoughts are with him tonight. Uh, and filling in for him, big shoes to fill, it's Jim Brunberg and the M-Chops. Jim. Before we move on with the show, there's just something I would like to get off my chest. As much as I don't want to give this person any more play than she already gets, which is a lot, I would like to address a recent quote from her. According to the LA Times, the former mayor of a small town called Wasilla, Alaska, was recently pontificating on the value of the National Endowment for the Arts. I think she might have actually gone on to be governor, but it was some weird, like, temp governorship where they only needed her for a couple years or something. Um, they must have filled the, the job from the manpower's gubernatorial department or something. Um, in any case, here's what she said. Uh, NPR, National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, 
all those kind of frivolous things that government shouldn't be in the business of funding with tax dollars, those should all be on the chopping block. I know, right? Which is what you'd expect at, a, at an arts show. Uh, but frivolous is, of course, the word that jumped out at me. Um, as a person who ditched her job as head of state for a reality TV show, I realized she has a very intimate relationship with frivolousness. So she should know better, but she doesn't. She called funding the arts frivolous. She did it. I heard it. Um, and I know it's not just those of us on, it's not just those people on her side of the ongoing political dogfight who believe this. Um, in times of trouble, financial or otherwise, when you're choosing between funding a mental health clinic and funding the play written by the guy who survived the mental health clinic, you're probably going to fund, you're, you're going to fund the former, right? That's, that feels like it's more important. But I think funding the arts is about just that. It's about our mental health. Most of the people that I know who make art would go crazy if they couldn't do it. And granted, that art might be, say, them in a full-body, hand-knitted meerkat costume sitting on a dirt mound reciting a lyric poem about Omaha steaks, but still, it's not, not, my, not, not my job to judge. Uh, but I also think it's about our mental health as a culture, as an audience, and what that means, and, and what art means to us. When we go to see a film or a play or a band or a reading, what we're waiting to see is ourselves, our lives, our pain, our families up there depicted in a way that illuminates it or validates it or even ties it all up in a neat bow and gives it a satisfying and sometimes even happy ending we could never have in real life. Art is a funhouse mirror. It's a conversation starter. Uh, and it's a faucet for the emotions that we can't express ourselves. And every great culture since the beginning of time has recognized that. Maybe even the first one, way back, that you think where, where humans were walking on the earth with dinosaurs, Madam Temp Governor, maybe even that culture. <clears throat> Here's the thing, Gov. You're just mad because some artsy types on a sketch comedy show found it so easy to parody you that all they had to do was put your actual words into Tina Fey's mouth and the sketch killed. <laughs> See what happened there? <laughs> Millions of people were frustrated and confused by your appearance on the political scene, but they couldn't quite crystallize the problem. But art found a way. Frivolous my ass. Moving on. Our musical guest tonight has just released their first seven-song EP, Cold Hands, and it's making a big splash. They describe their music as a marriage between the pop of the 80s and the twang of the 50s and 60s. That is a lot of decades to cover, but they pull it off. Please welcome Priory to Livewire.
Listen, man, I'm not telling you how to run your country. I'm just telling you that the crap you do over there, it affects me over here. That's not my problem, Gaddafi. Eh, well, eh, well, maybe I'll make it your problem, Kim Jong. Guys, guys, cool it out. Listen, Gaddafi, I see where you're coming from, okay? Kim Jong-il, I see your point, too. You went after New York City, Bin Laden, and we didn't say anything. Remember that. Okay, listen, gentlemen. The Eagles Talent Brotherhood of Terrorism Fun Club is in it for the long haul. <laughs> Let's just table Austin, Texas for now and move on. Besides, I ordered this barbecue sauce from the Salt Lake down there, and I don't want anything screwing that up. Uh, uh, fine, fine. Up next, we have Las Vegas. All in favor of hitting Vegas, say aye. 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 Oh. Kim Jong, what is the problem? Uh, why Las Vegas? Are you kidding? It is the biggest haven of American depravity out there. Surely you agree it must be destroyed. Well, it's just... I was kind of hoping to see the Manny Pacquiao fight. Oh. 
A, a boxing match? You want to avoid attacking Las Vegas because of a silly boxing match? It is not silly, Gaddafi. He is pound for pound best boxer in the world. And if he gets that super fight at the MGM ground with Floyd Mayweather, you better believe I'm going to pay-per-view that action. Oh, give me a break, Kim Jong. Yeah, I'll tell you what, silly, Gaddafi. That stupid little hat you wear all the time. What's up with that? Really? You really want to start talking fashion? Really? Really? Because I don't think you want to go there. Okay, guys. No Vegas. What about San Francisco? Uh, isn't Pixar headquarters near San Francisco? <sighs> you again with the Pixar. Come on, man. Well, Toy Story 3, best movie of the year. Oh, come on. You are saying that Toy Story 3 was better than the King's Speech? Ah, uh, best movie of the last five years. Uh, you are such a sucker for that sentimental garbage. I want my Academy screener back, by the way. Fine, but I've been meaning to ask you, how are you getting those DVDs? Well, my fifth wife won an Oscar for Best Sound Effects Editing for Titanic. Mm. Uh, I get dibs on the screeners whenever there's a war season. Uh. You are so lucky, Gaddafi. I've been trying to find them online, but I can't get into a good torrent site. I'm downloading it like two kilobytes a second or something ridiculous. Oh, oh dang it. Uh, what's the matter? Uh, what is the point in having an iPhone 4 if I'm running on the damn Edge network? This cave of yours sucks, Osama. Look, don't blame the cave. Blame your lousy carrier. Uh, are you on Verizon or AT&T? Uh, neither. It's hacked. Oh, really? I didn't spend four years with T-Mobile just to switch and begin a new contract with AT&T. Mm. My buddy unlocked it, and boom! Nice. Yeah, I don't have any visual voicemail, but other than that... Oh, and I paid just 70 bucks a month for everything. Oh, hello. Why did I buy a droid? Take it easy, Gaddafi. Take it easy. I've heard the apps are getting better, so... Please don't patronize me. I know that I've been had, okay? The apps suck. Oh, speaking of apps, the other day I heard there was a Fleetwood Mac app. Well, I dropped $4.99, and all I get is a weekly recipe from Stevie Nicks. Oh, and Mick Fleetwood's Bizarre Daily Affirmations. Mm, okay, guys. Favorite Fleetwood Mac album ever. Go. Mmm, that's so tough. Mm. Are you insane? It's Tusk. Everybody knows this. No, they don't. I don't know that. Tusk was not only a commercial success, but they were really attempting something bigger. Yeah? You know? It was acknowledging the influence of punk and the way. It still holds up. OMG, guys. Look at my Twitter feed. Rachel Maddow just retweeted my comment about Mike Huckabee. <laughs> no, 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 We are getting totally sidetracked on the American city plan. Oh, whoops, okay. Sorry, guys, sorry. Let's see here. Uh, Seattle? I've had Seattle on the list, like, since forever. I'm down. Uh, I'd rather not. <sighs> Why, Gaddafi? Well, I just have this Groupon for a massage in Capitol Hill. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I don't want to waste the $40. Look, Gaddafi, I'll just give you the 40 bucks. That's not the point. The point is I already bought it and I have been looking forward to it. Plus, I am like a total Xbox nerd and I don't want Microsoft delaying the release of Halo 4 again. Oh, fine, fine. We should just table the whole thing until we can agree on a city where nothing good comes from there. Mm. Portland, Oregon? Don't even think about it, Kim Jong. You know I love me my blazers. Rip City, baby! (laughs) 
You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like that one night you played the bagpipes while trading knock-knock jokes with Carl Castle. Good times. Coming up, filmmaker Matt McCormick, Oregon Shakespeare Festival artistic director Bill Rausch, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Welcome back to LiveWire. Our next guest is an award-winning short film and video director, as well as an artist and documentarian. He's directed videos for Sleater Kinney, The Shins, Yacht, and he's collaborated with other talented folks like Miranda July and Patton Oswalt. Last year, he completed his first feature film, Some Days Are Better Than Others, starring James Mercer of The Shins and Portlandia's Carrie Brownstein. The film was a featured selection at South by Southwest. Please welcome Matt McCormick to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hi. It's thanks. great to have you here. It's good to be here. Um, so I, I got a chance to watch the film, and it's, and it's really beautiful. I want to talk about it a little later, but I also wanted to talk about um, your history and kind of where you started. I, I know that you've made videos for various people, and there's a lot of famous directors who started off making videos. Spike Jones. Uh, who directed Where the Wild Things Are, started off with videos. David Fincher, uh, who directed The Social Network. What sort of training ground are videos for feature directors? I think um, music videos are an interesting, it's like an assignment in a way. Um, obviously, it's a collaboration, and you're given a, a foundation to work with, which is the song. And, and typically the way it works is a band will approach a director and ask for an idea. And then if they like your idea, then they hire you to do the, the video. All you have to work with as a director is the visual. Um, so you, basically you better make it good if it's going to be a good video. So it really forces you to... And you only have like three minutes, so you don't have time to waste. You need to get in there and take advantage of the, those, those spare moments. And it probably teaches you to tell a story in a very short period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think every music video I've done has probably shot twice as much as we needed to, and then that was the biggest challenge, actually, was, oh, how is it all going to fit together? Right. Well, you essentially fit an entire A-Team episode into the Shins Australia video, so well done yes, there. Yes, good. I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> um, and you, you've been known in the past, you've, you've directed a lot of different kinds of films. You've directed short documentaries, short narrative films. 
you've, you've, you've been called an experimental director in all of these different ways. What defines that for you? Why do you think that you've been called that? Experimental is, I guess, the kind of catch-all. If it doesn't fit into some other category, then it must be experimental, maybe. Um, I don't know. But it is. It's, you know, the great thing about experimental work and, and the shorts that I've done in the past is that, I mean, I'm pretty much just working by myself. It's a situation where I'm just creating everything from the story to, you know, I'm, I'm writing or, or coming up with the idea. I'm shooting it. I'm editing it. I'm oftentimes doing the soundtrack or the music. Um, and with that, there's this wonderful freedom. You know, unlike more traditional narrative work or even larger documentaries for that matter, you have the challenge of working with a crew and a more confined time frame, you know, more of a schedule. But whereas if it's just you, then you, know, you can kind of do whatever you want to. And what's great about that is it gives you that freedom. I think the word experiment actually makes a lot of sense because you have kind of a completely open page to do, to try all sorts of things. And since you're working by yourself, if you totally mess up, no one knows. That's great. You know? How, how hard is it to be objective about your film when you are doing all of those things? You're editing it, shooting it, doing the music for it. It's, it's difficult, for sure. And, but at the same time, I think that what's really helpful about that is it allows an artist to kind of find their voice. Right. Um, had I not spent 15 years making shorts before doing a feature, I don't know if I would have had the confidence to go into that environment where suddenly I do have a crew of 15 people and actors in a very tight schedule and, and be able to go in there and make those decisions and kind of know what I wanted to do. Well, I think we have a clip of this film, um, and I wondered if you might want to just quickly set it up. Okay, well, this is one. So the film is... Um, there's really four main characters. The, the film lacks a central character, but instead it's kind of four different stories that are kind of interwoven um, to different degrees, and each, each following a different character who is kind of lacking something in their lives, and, and, and they're at different levels of, of realization, of realizing that. Um, you know, there's definitely gaps in these people's lives, and they're, they're not exactly sure how to fill them. Um, two of the characters are uh, kind of a well-intentioned 30-something-year-old kind of slacker. And then That's his, played by James Mercer that, of The Shins. Yeah, the character is Eli, played by James Mercer. And then this older gentleman who is kind of his step-grandfather. And he's uh, in his 80s, and, and he is basically a folk artist and an inventor and someone who his whole life has been kind of seeking recognition for the things that he's made and he hasn't quite got there yet but he hasn't you know even though he's in his 80s he's still still trying is chloe your girlfriend no no she's uh she's my roommate uh, um she got me this job though and yeah, we're just friends do you uh, do you have a girlfriend now no i don't why not? Well, I don't, you know, I think it's just, it's hard to meet people, you know? And I have a bad habit of falling in love with lesbians. Let lesbians? <laughs> yeah, you know, lesbians like, um, women who like other women. Oh, right, right. Let lesbians.
then, so James Mercer, Carrie Brownstein, who is doing more acting now, but, but is from Sleater Kinney, uh, doesn't really, you used a lot of actors in this that don't really define themselves as actors. Yeah. Um, and including, um, it's David Wodehouse is the older man in yeah, this. Yeah, David Wodehouse, yes. So what was the reasoning behind that? Well, um, it wasn't necessarily intentional. It um, started with a very, I'd say, traditional casting. And you know, I have not really done a lot of work with actors before. And once I started the, the casting um, process, I, I realized early on that it was more important for me to find actors who understood the characters. Uh, their understanding of the characters was more important than their experience as an actor. Um, working with really experienced actors can be fantastic, but also sometimes if, if, a, if a really confident actor kind of already has their idea of what something's going to be, getting them off of that can be difficult. Yeah. And, and that's something as a director I don't necessarily have experience at. And I just realized, like, these are different people who, f- frankly, understood the characters. And, you know, I had worked with everyone before in different capacities. Um, I had did, done, and David Wodehouse. Yeah, well, well, David Wodehouse. So with that character, that's an interesting... That, that character is actually based on George Andrus, who is this amazing folk artist who lives down in Albany, Oregon, who is uh, an experimental filmmaker, basically. And he's 94 years old. And he's still working on these. He makes these beautiful films that are basically close-up photography of bubbles. And they're really beautiful and really cute. And the first time I saw one, I thought, there's no way this is real. This is some, you know, 20-year-old hipster artist who is faking this. Mm -hmm. But in fact, no, it's this beautiful short film with this 94-year-old guy who... Sh- filming bubbles and narrating it and making music for it on his on his organ and it's just beautiful and so I got to know this guy and and kind of that character is very much based on him and I wanted George to act in the in the movie and and, and play that part but at 94 years old we started excuse me we started rehearsing and and he just couldn't remember the lines and we both ar- ar- agreed that well maybe you shouldn't act in it but. He was still really excited to be a part of it. So, but you can still shoot in my house, and I'll make all the soap films, and you know. So, so then at that point, we were like, "Oh no! How? What are we going to do?" There's, you know, Portland's not a town that's necessarily overloaded with, you know, 85-year-old actors. Yeah. And so uh, Simon Hill, who is helping us with casting, said, "Well, let's let's put something on Craigslist. You know, maybe we'll find someone." And sure enough, um, actually. Um, who found us was, was, was David's wife, who David had just kind of retired after a 30-year career as a comedian on the Prince Royal Cruise Lines and, and had just retired and was kind of going crazy. And he's, he's in his mid-80s, and, and, the, and his wife was like, I've got to find something for this guy to do, or this, is, this, this guy <laughs> is driving me crazy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So she actually was the one who called us and was like, hey, my husband would be perfect for this. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and came and auditioned. And, and he had very little, I mean, he had a background in, in acting, but, but he was a comedian. Yeah. And it was amazing. He just walked in and, and like he had everything so memorized and was just so comfortable. And he just had this very kind of great nonchalant, you know, I'm, I can do this, no problem. He was, he was absolutely wonderful. And it's a beautiful, quiet, uh, intimate film. And it's really, it's some of 
the most, it's one of the most beautifully shot films I've seen in a really long time. It's just like a series of stunning photographs. Um, I think it's really an accomplishment. Um, so congratulations on that. Thank and you. It, how many other cities? Oh, it's kind of it all over. In? So um, it'll be showing in MoMA next week. Great. In New York City. Um, then it opens in Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago. Great. Somedaysthemovie.com. We also have a Facebook page. Um, so, yeah, yeah check just it look out. for it there. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Filmmaker right. Matt McCormick, everybody. Thank you. That was filmmaker Matt McCormick, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Killer Light. You know how in the bad seed, that weird girl, the pigtails, did all that mean stuff? Well, this is the opposite of that. Nothing but whole grains, omega-3s, and fiber. Man, that girl was weird. Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. Hi there, I'm John Travolta, and I'm an actor. Over the years, I've been lauded for my performances, and I've even been nominated for a couple of Oscars. Whenever I'm not acting, though, I do other things, like masking my baldness and like flying planes and stuff, and uh, like indoctrinating people. And I appreciate all the recognition I do, but, you know, I, I need more. Actors. They're people, too. People who need lots of awards. Not just for acting, but for other things. Sean Penn here. Guess where I am right now? That's right, Darfur. Or is it Haiti? No, it's Darfur. Whenever I'm not making leaden and depressing dramas, I'm in Darfur. I'm in Darfur right now, and I was in Darfur yesterday. I'm in Darfur all the time. Sure, I've won awards for playing disabled people and gay guys, but have I ever won an award for being in Darfur? Hell no. You guys are lame. Actors care about so many things, but they're never given credit for it. Don't you think that should change? <laughs> I'm Kate Hudson. Goldie Hawn's my mom. And I know Kurt Russell. I should get an award for that. I mean, it's like watching Overboard every day. These are fragile, neurotic egomaniacs that need constant gratification or they will wither away to nothing. Do you want to be responsible for the fact that there will never be a Titanic 2 love on ice? I thought not. The Actors Awards Fund is a nonprofit organization that exists solely to continue celebrating the lives of these selfless mega millionaire tradespeople even after awards season has ended. Just listen to these amazing accomplishments. Hello, I'm Christopher Walken, and it's like I got this excellent chicken salad a recipe. It's crazy. I just uh, I'm Keanu Reeves. I can look dumb in seven different languages. I'm Gilbert Godfrey, and my talking is yelling. I'm Kate Winslet, and I'm British. That's right. With one small donation, you can make a difference in their empty money and pleasure and boat and private island-filled lives. Call today, won't you? 
I'm Wilford Brimley. And, well, I'm Wilford Brimley. Diabetes. Operators are standing by. Our next guest became the artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival about four years ago. Oregon Shakespeare Festival, if, you, if you're not familiar, is the largest rotating repertory theater in the country. It's located in Ashland, Oregon. Yeah, if you've been there, it's huge. They produce 11 plays on three stages every season, and for their 2012 season, a record-breaking five of those 11 will be new works. Award-winning artistic director Bill Rouse has been a teacher, a director, a writer, and co-founder of the community-based Cornerstone Theater Company in Los Angeles. That was back in the 80s. Please welcome Bill Rouse to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. It's great to finally have you here. I'm so happy to be here. I, I visited the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, uh, I think it was about three years ago, and I was just completely amazed uh, at the scale of it. And I wanted to just give people an idea. Um, it's a four-acre campus with three theaters, including an outdoor Elizabethan theater. You have 325 full-time employees, 100 actors, 175 part-time actors. That's a lot of actors to deal with, Bill. Um, so what was it like when you first took this on? It was thrilling. <laughs> Just thrilling, not, no terrified, no, not terrified at all? It, thrilling things are often terrifying things. <laughs> but uh, I, Cornerstone that you mentioned that I started uh, is an ensemble-based theater. It's a community-based theater. There are 11, 12 members of that company. And then to go to a place where suddenly there are 500 people and 785 performances and an audience of 410,000, very different scale. Sure. And uh, overwhelming in a way, but really exciting to be part of it. So in 2009, you won the Margot Jones Award, and that was, that's an award that was previously given to Joseph Papp, who started the public theater and Shakespeare in the Park in New York. Um, and one of the reasons that that was given to you was your dedication to new works. And this year, out of 11 plays, you're producing five new works. Why, why so many this year? I feel like... The great classics that we do, that we do at the Shakespeare Festival, um, of course, all started as new plays. Almost all the great classic plays came out of company settings, came out of settings with resident companies of actors, usually companies of actors working in rotating repertory. So I feel like in Ashland, the fact that we not only have the largest acting company in the country, but the fact that we have one of the only acting companies in the country uh, really gives us an opportunity and a responsibility to create new plays. So what are some of the challenges of bringing new works to a theater company that's, that's been established for a long time, and especially in, in times when budgets aren't that high? Well, what's been so exciting at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is back in the day you would say, well, a Shakespeare play, that's you know, a surefire uh, choice with an audience, and new work is risky, yeah. but actually it's all been shaken up. 
and we have performed new plays that are filled, the seats are filled uh, 99%, 100% of capacity. And then a given Shakespeare play might not be as popular. So all bets are off. And yeah. I think what audiences are looking for is uh, something visceral and something meaningful and something deep. And uh, they're hungry for that in whatever form it comes. Yeah. Well, I think that um, when I actually met you a couple years ago, and you were at an art summit in, in Portland, and the theme of it was risk-taking. And you had some great things to say about making mistakes and the benefits of making mistakes when you're in an arts organization. And that gets harder and harder for, for people, again, as budgets shrink. So how do you have people continue with this, this continue to be able to make, make mistakes and want to make mistakes in a culture like this? Well, I think, first of all, we have to talk about what you mean by a mistake, right? Because you may say, uh, uh, heading toward opening night, "Uh uh-oh, this was a mistake. Uh, And then that becomes one of the most meaningful things you've ever done. You might do a play that doesn't do well at the box office, but that advances the art form. Uh, So I think that the definition of failure or mistake is very subjective. And... For me as an artist, you have to look into your heart and what, what are the values uh, that you're operating under in terms of defining what's a success and what is not. Well, what's the best mistake you ever made? Oh, wow. What a great question. <laughs> or the most fortuitous one. Um, I have been involved with several spectacular failures uh, in my life as an artist. Absolutely. But they become the things that shape your life, right? Uh, I want to have that perfect anecdote, and it's just not coming. We can, yeah, we can get to it later. But I wanted to talk about, you know, we, we mentioned Joseph Papp, and he, was, he came up with the concept of free Shakespeare in the park, bringing theater to people who normally wouldn't be able to, to go. And that's what Cornerstone was about in Los Angeles, was bringing theater to communities that wouldn't normally have it. Um, so what sort of changes did you see in those communities that you brought theater to? Cornerstone is still going strong in L.A., 25 years into its life. Uh, I was with the company for 20 years. And uh, the work was so extraordinary because we would move into a small town or an urban neighborhood and make a play with people who lived in those communities. Uh, Anywhere from two months to four or five months, uh, we would live in the community and make a play. And people's lives were profoundly changed by the work. And I mean everybody's lives. The, those of us coming into the community as artists, but also the people who lived in the community. So I'll give you one story as an example. We did a biracial production of Romeo and Juliet in a town in Mississippi, Port Gibson, Mississippi. And uh, the, we gave some of the box office proceeds for the community to keep on doing theater after we left. And the town only did one play after we left one biracial play, so we thought, oh no, we have failed. And in fact, we were back a couple years later on a tour, and all these people grabbed us and told us the same story. African Americans, European Americans, all telling us the same story, that Port Gibson had been honored uh, recently for being a Main Street USA town, a federally funded program where small towns uh, were revitalizing their Main Streets. And out of 435 Main Street USA towns, they had the most racially integrated board in the United States. And they all ended the story by saying, it's because of the play. 
We all met. We all learned to trust each other. We all learned to communicate through the play. So, you know, art changes people's lives. We all know that. But when you experience it that viscerally, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, in 1999, you went up to D.C. and you actually uh, spoke in defense of the National Endowment for the Arts. What do you think the government's role should be in funding the arts? I think the government should fund the arts, of course. <laughs> um, yes, let's clap for that. <laughs> it was inter- interesting when I testified uh, to the subcommittee uh, I was warned, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to be taking notes. They're going to be talking to each other. So for me, the great triumph was that they actually looked at me while I was talking. Like, that, that, was, the, that was the big thrill. Um, I, you know, here's what I feel about the power of art. It's naive to say, I'm going to make a statement with this work of art. I'm going to change the world in this particular way with my work of art. Very naive. But I think it's even more naive and more dangerous to think that a work of art does not have the power to change the world. Because we all know that we have been shaped by the art we experience. And the values that we reinforce and the values that we critique and try to tear down, uh, that all happens through the art that we experience. So art is so vital. And your earlier quote about uh, art being frivolous is so enraging, so deeply disturbing, uh, because art, uh, art creates the world. And we move through the world based on the art that we've experienced. So it's crucial. And government support allows things to happen that would not happen without it. I feel strongly about this. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> And the NEA is, it's not just that they give money to fund the arts, they also do studies, and they've recently done a study um, because they were slightly concerned because it seems that people are going to live theater less or live, just any sort of live performance a little bit less, and what they discovered is the good news is that people are actually interacting with the arts significantly more. 75% of Americans last year interacted with the arts in some way, probably on their television or their, you know, maybe on their phone. But, but, um, but not just digitally, but also participation in the arts. So often we define arts consumption as certain kind of art in a certain kind of space, but actually... Uh, people making art in their own lives and participating in art making is flourishing as never before. And that is, to me, the really good news. Why do you think that's happening? Uh, People crave human connection. We always have, we always will. And uh, whether it's singing in a community choir or being part of a play, whatever it is, uh, we need that. We need to try to make sense of... uh, this existence. Mm-hmm. Well, if the worst happened, if somehow people just sort of stopped going to live theater, what's lost? Like, what is at stake with the loss of live theater or live performance, do you think? You know, it's so interesting because we talk, uh, we've got a lot of students that come to visit us at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in the spring and the fall in particular. We have huge numbers of students. There can be an audience that's 75, 80% young people. And uh, we talk about what's appropriate for a, a middle school student, what's appropriate for a high school student. And, the, and there's something about a live play where the emotional danger is so much higher. And you say a certain word, 
or there's a certain physical action, or there's an emotional risk that's taken, and because it's an actor in that room with those people, and because we're sitting side by side experiencing it in the audience, the stakes are so high that uh, you can't capture that in any other way. And we will never, the same way uh, all the work I do on my iPad and my iPhone is never going to replace you and I sitting and looking at each other. It's a wonderful supplement in terms of our relationship, but it's never going to replace this. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the same thing is true of live theater. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, you're actually one of the new plays that's being put up in the 2012 season is for you what it, you call it a lifelong passion project. Oh, yes. It's Medea Macbeth Cinderella, which sounds epic. Um, <laughs> so are you going to be directing that? I co-direct it with a brilliant woman named Tracy Young. We are the co-adapters and the co-directors. I started working on this when I was 19 because I heard a professor talk about the three great populist movements in Western drama Mm -hmm. being Greek tragedy, Elizabethan drama, and the American musical comedy. And as a 19-year-old, I was like, what if you took one example of each of those and you laid them out side by side? What would you learn? So we did that. And it was unbelievable. And what did you learn? Well, first of all, it says so much about the rhythms of popular storytelling. Um, Cinderella sings her first solo song just at the same time that Macbeth does his first soliloquy, mm-hmm. which is exactly at the same point in the story that Medea has her first speech. The banquet in the Scottish play happens just at the same time as the ball in Cinderella. Like the shared rhythms of these incredibly disparate stories... It's uncanny. It's like it's right there. So we explore that, and I'm still stuck on it almost 30 years later. Well, it sounds... Still working on it. (laughs) Really wonderful, and it's a reason for people to go to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Absolutely. And for your 2012 season. Yes. Yeah, well, it was such a pleasure having you here. Everyone should go and visit the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. If you're a theater lover, for me, it was more significant than New York, just because it's an entire community around theater and acting, and it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, And you're doing an amazing job there. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. Bill Rath. That was Oregon Shakespeare Festival Artistic Director Bill Rausch, and you're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose Whole Planet Foundation creates economic partnerships and gives microcredit loans to developing world communities that supply their stores. The Whole Planet Foundation, giving microcredit where microcredit is due. More information can be found at wholeplanetfoundation.org. You're listening to Livewire Radio, offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. We'll be right back after this short break.
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Priory. Well, as promised, 
the man who's been toiling away for this entire hour, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I've Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I've learned tonight that as soon as you pick a direction in life, as soon as you pick barista or phlebotomist, carny or glider pilot, a flamingo dancer, not a flamenco dancer, or farrier, there's always someone there to say, you haven't gone far enough. There's always someone screaming, you can't just want to be a farrier. You can't just collect horseshoes. You have to get a horse <laughs> who needs shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe you just want to be a barista because you like saying barista. It rolls off the tongue better than janitor. <laughs> you have absolutely no ambition beyond that. Say you don't want to make a film, raise chickens, or learn how to bowl backwards. You just want to make coffee, damn it. What if you just say, isn't there a place for the bare minimum done really, really adequately? <laughs> as soon as you say something like that, there will always be someone who will push a giant pipe organ into the room with the entire drum section of a marching band and play one giant whole note and sing, no, that's not enough. Isn't there any way to just cruise along until you're given a sign to kick in some extra effort? Wouldn't it be nice not to try if it wasn't really necessary? Like, I'll run for president if no one else wants to. Like, what if you've only written one haiku in your life? How do you know if you have a Shakespeare lurking inside you? Are there signs you can look for? Do you have to have a ghost following you around? A grad school pal with a rad school name like Horatio have a weird thing for your mom? Do you have to hang out in graveyards and mistakenly stab people? Do you have to have a habit of falling in love with lesbians? At the end of the day, does there have to be a pile of dead people around you? Do you have to wear tights? Do you have to have a goatee? Do you even have to like to write? Because none of these things are naturally happening to me right now. <laughs> Instead, I like looking at bubbles. I love watching its rainbow surface swirls until black lines start to run between the colors like dark rivers spreading like a flood until the planet that they're taking over suddenly disappears. Then I blow another bubble. Why can't that be enough? I should get an award for that, shouldn't I? <laughs> Thank you. Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Matt McCormick, Bill Rausch, and Priory. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brunberg, Steve Berlin, John Stewart, and Matt Sheehy. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company and Whole Foods Market. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show was produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and Scott Poole, and performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pat Janowski. Our guest writers this week are Jason Rouse and Timmy Williams. 
Williams. Guest performer was Andrew Harris. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 